HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation, family-owned creamery. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com to learn more. Welcome. Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome journalist Karen Stabiner and chef Sandy D'Amato. In this episode, we're going to talk to Karen and Sandy about what restaurants mean to our communities how communities have been supporting restaurants, and we'll get another double Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Today, we're focusing on how the pandemic has revealed what restaurants mean to our lives and our communities beyond just places to eat. For Julia, one restaurant in particular changed the trajectory of her entire life. That restaurant was La Caronne in Rouen. The dish was Sol Meunier. And the moment awoken in Julia her deep passion for food and cooking. Restaurants can have that much impact. If you want to learn more about that moment in Julia's life, it's chronicled in her memoir, My Life in France, co-written with her great-nephew, Alex Prudhomme. It's also recreated in the soon-to-be-released Julia documentary about her life and legacy from Imagine Entertainment and Sony Pictures Classics. It debuts in theaters November 5th. And believe it or not, it's the first full-length documentary about Julia. Now, given the importance of restaurants to Julia and all that they have endured lately, today we're focusing on how the pandemic has really renewed our appreciation for restaurants as valued members of our communities. Two people who know a thing or two about this are journalist Karen Stabiner and chef Sandy D'Amato. Karen is the West Coast editor at The Counter, an award-winning nonprofit newsroom. 
a prolific author as well as journalist. She has written more than 10 nonfiction books, novels, and cookbooks. Her most recent, Generation Chef, follows a young chef as he opens his first restaurant. Her focus as a journalist is narrative nonfiction, and in addition to The Counter, her work has been published everywhere, from the New York Times to Gourmet, Vogue, and Mother Jones. Also a teacher, Karen is an adjunct professor at Columbia's Journalism School and previously founded an alternative newspaper right in the foundation's hometown headquarters of Santa Barbara, California. A Culinary Institute of America alum and a graduate of many a New York City restaurant kitchen, Sandy D'Amato made his name as a chef in Milwaukee. Sandy, along with his wife Angela, ran the multi-award winning and nationally recognized Samford Restaurant on the site of his family's former Milwaukee grocery store. After 24 years, twice being listed as one of the best 50 restaurants in America by Gourmet Magazine, and Sandy having been named James Beard Foundation Best Chef Midwest, the D'Amato sold Sanford to their longtime chef de cuisine in 2013. During more than four-plus decades in food, Sandy has cooked for everyone from Julia Child to the Dalai Lama at the Salt Lake City Olympics and for the taste of the NFL, which raises money for Feeding America, the nation's leading domestic hunger relief charity. As an author and longtime cooking teacher, Sandy wrote Good Stock, Life on a Low Simmer, a memoir with recipes, and he contributes to Western Massachusetts' edible Pioneer Valley. In 2014, the D'Amato's opened Good Stock Farm, a small home cooking school in Hatfield, Massachusetts, which showcases locally grown produce and fruit. Karen and Sandy join us today to talk about restaurants as valued community members and to share innovative ways communities have rallied behind their restaurants. Welcome to the podcast, Karen and Sandy. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So let's start with Karen to kind of set the big national picture. So you, you, Karen, you've been actively covering the pandemic's impact on restaurants for the counter. And I was curious, I, I know it's a lot to just summarize everything that's happened, but how would you describe where things have gotten to in the restaurant industry right now? I've been thinking about that a lot to try to boil it down. What if we say promising chaos, just to sum it up? Um, <laughs> okay, elaborate a little bit, but I, but I like the summary. Okay, the irony here is that about a month before the pandemic, I wrote a long piece for the counter called Is the American Restaurant on Life Support? Because even back then, primarily members of the independent restaurant sector, the places we go to eat often, um, we're saying, this is a bad business model. We are in a fragile position. We don't know what we're going to do about rent and food costs and employment costs. And we're barely getting by. And if we raise our hamburger price for $2 by $2, uh, people might go down the block to someplace else. So it was not like we came into this as a robust industry. We've been flattened. I think restaurateurs are feeling very tentative. They see casualties to the right and left of them. Every one of them who I speak to is doing numbers in his or her head all the time. Are we going to get by? Do we have to change this? Can we afford to build a better outdoor seating area because we'll get more people? Constant mathematics in the head. Um, but at the same time, if you're one of those people who's crazy enough to feed people for a living, mm -hmm. 
you're not going to turn around tomorrow and pick a new career. So what gives me hope, the promising part of the chaos, is that I hear people talking not about whether to continue, but about how to continue. Um, certainly everyone who's listening is thinking, oh, but I heard about this person who's given it up and this person who's turning to something else. Yes. But I'm talking about in the main, from the people I've been talking to for the last 18 months, they all want to look for a way to continue to feed us. And the flip side of that is that people who look to restaurants for a sense of community, you know, regulars, not restaurant chasers, people who recognize other diners when they go in or recognize a server or have gotten to know the manager and vice versa. We're all standing there ready to dine. And I think that enthusiasm, I hope that enthusiasm has given restaurateurs a little bit of a second wind. Um, I'm, I'm pleased for the occasional stories that we hear about problems I'm certainly pleased to see that in general, people are being very respectful of the rules, very respectful of what you need to do to keep the restaurant family safe. Uh, so yes, it's crazy. It's not over. There's a lot more suffering to go through, but I am heartened by these people who just dig in and say, okay, fine. I'm going to run a fish market in my fish restaurant. I'm going to run a wine store in my pasta restaurant. I am not going to let this turn me away from what I love. That, I think, is a, a terrific both reminder, because actually you've reminded me that on this show we were covering with many chefs, particularly New York chefs, before the pandemic, how the model was maybe not as broken as it's been revealed, but unsustainable, especially in a place that had passed a higher living wage law and with the issues behind um, the, 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 the issues about uh, compensation, front of house and back of house. And I thought, actually, I might turn to Sandy sooner than, than, than planned, because Karen, I was struck by what you said about the idea of there are special people who, no matter the hardships, are born to feed people and want to keep doing that and can't turn to something else. And it struck me that, okay, well, Sandy, I don't know if you would self-describe, but is one of those people. Sandy, do you have a reaction as one of those people to to the stage that Karen set? Yeah, I, I do. I And I, I agree with uh, what Karen was saying about the, uh, the promising chaos. Um, but I, over the years, I really haven't known too many people, too many chefs who have uh, gotten into the restaurant business. Um, their first idea was not to make money. Their first idea was this was this was their passion. This is what they what they felt they had to do. And, um, you know, just just thinking back that over the years, the, the people that that survive in this business um, are in the places that really flourish are the ones that know how to pivot and know how to reinvent themselves. And if there was ever a time for reinvention, I mean, this is it. Because um, I, I don't think that the, um, that the restaurant as we know it is going to come out of this at, um, being the same at all. And there's, there's people that I've, that I've talked to that, that say, well, I, you know, like I, I just don't want things to change. And, um, you know, things have to change. And, and this, this time, 
this uh, whole time um, that I've seen it in this area that it's it's just not fully shaken out yet. I mean, the, the country as a whole is doing a complete reevaluation of what what work means and what place it holds in your life. In in the restaurant business, uh, work always meant that was your life. I mean, you you were in the restaurant business. You're entertainment. You're you're working when everyone's playing. No, I, th- I I think that's a profound observation, and I think very very true. And I think we'll pick that back up later in the show about what what this means for this sort of change. But uh, but that really resonates with me. I, I want to bring up front and center though, because one of the inspirations for this show was uh, I think one of the more positive things that came out of it, other than the revelation to wider people that the model is broken, but that restaurants play this unique role in communities that I think a lot of people either did not recognize or take for granted. And I know that, that Karen in particular has covered this. So I wanted to bring Karen in to kind of talk about in, in your reporting, both what's been published and people you've been talking to. What are your takeaways or discoveries or, or I mean, or do you even buy into this idea that people had these revelations that restaurants are community members, not just dining establishments? You know, I've been listening to Joni Mitchell sing, they paved paradise and put up a parking lot in my head sort of through most of this, because there's that line, don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Um, And I think on some level, sort of the celebrity chef trend that began really in the 90s and has exploded everywhere we look has been a bad thing because Sandy's absolutely right. People who go into this for passion, if they make money, that's lovely, but they don't go into it as a growth industry. And I think we lost sight of that every time we saw a new celebrity chef with an endorsement deal or a television program or or things like that. Um, I think we have been forced back to basics here. Um, But I think that the other thing that we've discovered to stay on track with your question is how much it means to people to have sort of a regular kind of restaurant, not a celebration restaurant, a neighborhood restaurant where you can be a regular, like I said. I mean, I waited a long time to go back to a restaurant just because everybody's fear level is different and that's where mine was. And I don't think I will ever forget my first outdoor dining experience with a friend at a favorite restaurant, it was overwhelming because it was like seeing old friends who'd been through a terrible, well, it was seeing old friends who'd been through (laughs) a terrible time. Uh, And we were also grateful to be there and respectful of the process and, and thrilled to have a place outside our homes where we could gather. Uh, I think that, Customers actually have a tremendous responsibility here to support restaurants in whatever form they're taking at the moment. You know, we have to adjust just as much as the restaurants do. Uh, And remember that the value of those face-to-face communications and a meal that's maybe just a little bit better, or at least you don't have to clean up afterwards than what you'd make at home Uh, and, and kind of step up and support restaurants as they find their feet again. And do you think or have you found or or written stories about 
not what the chefs and the restaurateurs, but that community members have have found to your Joni Mitchell quote about <laughs> what was lost or or I mean, I sort of worry that it's transitory. Like, yeah, you know something you want it when you can't have it. But it's another thing when it 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 returns, even in a modified form, do you immediately start taking that for granted? Well, you know what? <laughs> if we take restaurants for granted after the past 18 years, 18 months, feels like 18 years, but 18 <laughs> months, um, then shame on us, honestly. And journalists aren't supposed to have opinions like that. But truly, if we get back into being sort of complacent and demanding and unappreciative, then we're going to get what we deserve, which is fewer restaurants that survive. I think we are not equal partners in this. I think we've got to be active partners in the recovery uh, and and make ourselves conscious. I've certainly thought more when I go into that favorite restaurant that does a lot of wonderful things with vegetables. I sometimes sit there and think, wow, I know which farmer this came from at the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. I know what's involved in making it, in preparing it this way. I am in awe of these people in a way I wasn't before. And I think it, it's, it's up to us to keep reminding ourselves of that and not slip back into, where's my fish? It's five minutes late, you know? <laughs> we just can't do that. It's not fair. And, and Sandy, from, from where you sit in Western Mass, what, what's been your kind of takeaway on the pandemic's impact and sort of where things have gotten to now and, and in relation to, you know, this kind of discovery of their value or taking for granted of it? You know, there, um, I think there's a deeper, there's a deeper problem with, um, you know, with that's happening in the restaurant industry um, that that's really kind of uh, really been full blown through this pandemic is that uh, as hard as the business is to run, there's in this area, there's not, there's not a lack of, of, of support uh, for the restaurants that um, like pivoted quite a while. Well, I'll use one example. Um, we had one of the best restaurants in the area. Um, they immediately pivoted to takeout food and they through the whole pandemic um, and it's still going on, um, were sold out every night and they were actually doing very well monetarily through, through this. And uh, in August, uh, August of this year, they just started back and they opened, they reopened their restaurant um, and opened up bookings and they were booked two months ahead. I mean, booked through into October already. Three weeks later, up on their website, they, um, they just said, we, uh, the pandemic really beat us up and we're out. And they, they just closed. Wow. And uh, moved and they moved to France. They sold their house <laughs> and moved to France. And um, <laughs> this is about as dramatic a throwing in the towel as you can get. Right. And b- because of everything that um, the, the changeover, I mean, when, when we had the restaurant, our worst time period was 2008 when the whole economy was collapsing. And uh, we went for we went for almost a year without taking a salary. And we didn't have to lay anyone off during that time because everybody just kind of jumped in. That is 
to me, that is nothing compared to what's just gone on for the last year and a half, because people have had to completely turn around their restaurants and, and find a new model just to survive. And the, the stress that you have just on the day-to-day, as Karen was saying, of, of running a restaurant, because um, it, it, it's always been a fractured model, um, just became intensified so much that mentally, I, th- I think it's just blown a lot of people out. And um, there's the people that the people that stay, there's incredible opportunity right now in in the restaurant business. There's there's going to be because a, a lot of a lot of people have have uh, realized what restaurants do mean to uh, to their community, and even uh, businesses are are being much more uh, amenable to to rents and to uh, you know helping people to survive. Um, but uh, but I don't I don't think we've see, we've even even seen the start of the shakeout of of what's gonna of what's gonna be happening. But but as they, they say, the good side is that there always is there will be people coming in to to take those spots too. Oh, I was if I could add one thing because we've been talking about the people who run the restaurants. I think it's important to realize that in addition to fixing what COVID broke, there are also all of these issues that were in place before that have now been sort of highlighted. Um, There's one restaurant group here in Los Angeles (laughs) that has taken the radical position that perhaps employees should get a holiday off, a single holiday off, because as Sandy knows, anybody who's been involved in restaurants, restaurant people are working for us on Christmas, on New Year's, on Valentine's Day, probably their least favorite holiday. (laughs) All of the times when sort of normal people would be with their families, they are feeding us food. And you think, well, isn't that marvelous? Everybody's going to get to have one of those holidays off. But I cannot tell you how they've struggled with it in terms of scheduling or who gets which holiday. Like New Year's Eve is probably the favorite holiday. You can't give everyone New Year's Eve. So how do you do that and still have everyone feel equal? Uh, There are all kinds of things like that that I think are going to come up because of what was mentioned before about, in addition to being a broken business model, restaurants have been a very difficult place to work. We've seen headlines about that for years. And that's going to have to get fixed too if people are going to come back to the industry at all levels, inside the kitchen, front of the house, everything. Yeah, no, that really resonates, Karen. And I think also Sandy brought up a couple points that that I just wanted to see if you wanted to elaborate on is that certainly when you were talking about that local business in Western Mass that was financially surviving during the pandemic, but they didn't get in, they, I assume, did not open their restaurant because they wanted to run a takeaway business. And so that, as you're saying, in the mental model of it is, yes, maybe you figured out a survival mechanism, but that's a different business model and not maybe the one you got into the business to do. And that the irony is the flip side. I feel like anyone who actually opened during the pandemic was opening into a sort of known quotient and could make decisions and actually wasn't didn't have a legacy to kind of manage under, and that in lies opportunity. And the third thing I'll say is also we were at a time, particularly in, in, in major or thriving economies, where there was just so much competition in the restaurant business because it was it had become 
sexier than it had been and and the barriers to entry had changed. So, I mean, does that all resonate with you or Sandy, do you want to elaborate on that before we go to break? Yeah. um, Actually, the people who, uh, Justin and Sarah, who bought our restaurant, we we're in, you know, we've been in contact with them, you know, regularly. I mean, they're, they're like our kids. I mean, they worked with us for 10 years before they took over the restaurant. And um, I mean, they, they immediately went over to takeout and uh, and this is uh, our the restaurant that they took over, Sanford, small fifty seat fine dining restaurant. Um, they they were doing you know they were doing wonderful takeout, and they were actually you know they did very well with the takeout, but now they they don't know what they should be. Now in this you know coming back, they they don't feel they they can be what they what they were, and they and they actually don't have the staff to do that. Because of uh, because of trying to get the people back, and um, they the the takeout when they did that, and at the level they were doing takeout, um, took up the whole restaurant. They couldn't they couldn't do takeout and because the restaurant's small and have people seated in there and and do dining too. So they're they're um, they're in this this incredible quandary of of what to do and and plus they're completely exhausted just from the whole changeover of going to take out and going to a new form and um and just doing everything they could just to get by and just to survive so it's uh i mean the, the mental strain i think on all restaurateurs that i've talked to is just that's that's the hardest part of it is you're always when you have a restaurant you're always at the point of well is this worth it? You know, just as Karen was talking about, you know, working the holidays and working and doing all this. And, and do I just want a normal life? And uh, it, it starts to cut into your passion. Yeah. Karen, did you want to add to that? I did, because I think takeaway is a really interesting and complicated phenomenon. I All of the restaurateurs I spoke to during the pandemic moved to takeaway, not because they desired to do takeaway. They did it for two reasons. One was they wanted to maintain that link with their community because everybody was suffering. But the other, which is probably the first reason, was they wanted to keep their staff and get them a paycheck while all of this craziness with with aid programs played out because it was so confusing to them um, and so uncertain. I know one young restaurateur in LA who at the beginning announced to her staff that her goal was simply to keep everyone employed for six months and whatever they would have to do, whether it was meal kits to go home, (coughs) excuse me, or takeout or anything else, her goal was to keep people paid and employed until they saw what the options were. Um, Certainly one of the chefs I mentioned before got slammed in a, really, (laughs) a really nasty uh, Yelp review because people didn't seem to understand that we were all in this together because the diner didn't think the portion of matzo ball soup was sufficient. It simply didn't look as good in a quart container as it had in a beautiful bowl. Um, So I think people, restaurant people are absolutely exasperated about what is the role takeout is going to play in my future? But I think it's clear it's going to be some portion, whether it's scaled back, whether it's different kinds of goods. A lot of restaurants I've seen instead have gone to sort of a pantry option, which seems to work 
rather well, like the fish restaurant that sells fish. Their stuff doesn't travel well for takeout, but they needed another source of income. So they decided they would sell fish. I can go in there and buy a pound of sea bass if I want. Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of people, again, you know, for another six months to a year, still trying to figure out what the new formula looks like. All right, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back with more from journalist Karen Stabiner and chef Sandy D'Amato about the value of restaurants in our communities. And Sandy's actually going to take us through um, an inspiring example of what happened uh, and a project he was involved with near him. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Sweetgrass Dairy, a second-generation family-owned creamery in Thomasville, Georgia. Their cows are raised barn-free and graze on fresh grass year-round. You can taste the flavor of the bright South Georgia sunshine and grass with each bite of Sweetgrass Dairy cheeses. Enjoy a variety of aged, soft-ripened, and fresh cow's milk cheeses in their unique and delicious gift boxes. Gather your favorite people around the table or on a picnic blanket for an assortment of unique cheeses accompanied by preserves, crackers, cured meat, and much more. A Sweetgrass Dairy gift box is the perfect way to celebrate a special occasion or show your gratitude. Visit SweetgrassDairy.com and use the code JULIA15 for 15% off your next order. That's JULIA15 for 15% off your next order at SweetgrassDairy.com. Welcome back. We're talking to journalist Karen Stabiner and chef Sandy D'Amato about how our communities have rallied behind restaurants to help support their survival in the wake of COVID-19. So Sandy, where, where you live in Western Mass, there's a charity called the Treehouse Foundation. And I don't know if it was them, you're going to tell us, or, or a group of people connected to them recognized that Restaurants needed the community support, and the community wanted to support the restaurants, and they created something called the Stir Up Some Love campaign. So could you tell us more about how that project came about, what, what's involved, and, and, and how you were involved? Sure. Yeah, the, um, the Treehouse Foundation is uh, it's a foundation that uh, was re-envisioning uh, foster care in America. They're, they're like based in East Hampton, uh, Massachusetts. And it's, it's really it's a planned community of, of 12 uh, four to five bedroom foster homes and 48 one bedroom cottages uh, for seniors that um, uh, form a, a welcoming and uh, nurturing community for foster children. And so they, they came up uh, with this idea. It was called Stir Up Some Love. And it was a fundraiser for both the Treehouse Foundation. And it teamed up with all the Pioneer Valley restaurants and uh, food businesses, all of us that were hit hard by the you know, the pandemic and the economic crisis. Um, so this, this campaign, it brought together the shared experience of a great meal and a close-knit community with a pay-for-view video series um, with uh, a chefs and food experts demonstrating their favorite recipes. The viewers then, like, they donate to watch the episodes or the entire season, and they could gain an insight into the chef's home, their restaurants, and their philosophy, along with a tasty downloadable recipe. Um, so through that, we were supporting two great causes. Uh, 
with one, um, actually with one idea. And it was uh, with Trighouse, the idea of, for me, and the reason I got involved in it, because the idea of, t- of taking foster care from individual to community, I think is just brilliant. I mean, you have a community of, of affordable housing for the families of the foster children, along with affordable housing for seniors, will become interactive um, in the children's lives. So it gives the children access to a lifetime of like of knowledge of uh, different views of like of loving support on a really on a constant basis. It's like a large family with multiple grandparents. Um, I mean, for me, like just looking at that, it, it seems like, you know, like family strong, but this community with family was stronger. So for me to be involved, um, if I can help the children, the community and the mission just by using my cooking skills, that was really a gift for me. And, and what they did was they would the the profits from this would be split between uh, Treehouse and the restaurants kind of as a stimulus check to them. Part of it went to them. So uh, we were, uh, I mean, it was just a win-win for everybody. And was this like a, a one-time thing or is it ongoing? And, and how, how what, what reaction did you get from some of the restaurateurs? Well, it started out with, um, with 15 uh, uh, restaurants and, and we're a cooking school. So restaurants and cooking school businesses. And um, the first uh, part of it in three months raised $30,000. And um, then it went on. Then they took another 10, 15 restaurants and set that up. So they're, they want to keep it going and keep, you know, like we'll redo new videos. And as, as long as there's, uh, you know, people are interested in, in supporting it. And what feedback, have you talked to any of the local restaurateurs or gotten feedback from them of, of, of what they thought of it or how it, how it did help them? I mean, you gave that example of, unfortunately, the one restaurant that seemed to be surviving and they, they packed it in. Has it uh, been a different story with, with other restaurants? Oh, it, it has been. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's, there's other restaurants and that, that's what I was saying with the, the opportunity here. It, it depends on your mental state. I mean, there's other restaurants that, that, um, are I think going to thrive through this, that uh, that are taking this as an opportunity and a and a new beginning for for what they're doing. Um, they, every every restaurant that was involved in it was was thrilled to be involved in it just because it's. Uh, I don't know why nobody ever thought of that before. You have um, when we had our restaurant. My my father used to um, uh, work with us when he after my mother passed away. He lived upstairs and he'd come down and he became like the the father for all the young kids that were, that were working at our restaurant. And, and, uh, you know, over the years, they, you know, they, he, he was more than willing to give out his knowledge. You know, he, you know, he, he loved that and, and they loved taking it and, and to have a community where you do this, it's, it's just, um, I, I, I just think it's, it's incredible that, that this, this been, somebody came up with this. No, and I think what the Treehouse Foundation and their model is is quite un- unfortunately unique, but quite incredible. I'm curious, though, given that obviously they have a demanding focus of this intergenerational but redefining community, and and certainly the famous line of "It takes a village to raise a child" is really embraced by them. But what was it? Did you hear from Treehouse that they had this idea of like, well, because obviously they have their own needs and priorities, but they felt like we need to help these restaurants. Well, it was because the restaurants 
are the community of, of I mean, the, the reason that people come to an area, I think, and people, especially when they move or they settle, I mean, one of the, I mean, it's, it's, it's arts and it's theater and people, you know, there's different things that draw people to an area. But one of the one of the main things is restaurants, and it used to be in this country that you 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 couldn't go home. I mean, you had to work in in uh, uh, New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles or New Orleans or or somewhere that had this huge restaurant community, but you couldn't do the food you wanted to do at home. Mm. And when I went back to Milwaukee in 1980, I left. I was in New York City for for uh, eight years, working after I I got out of the Culinary Institute and. I didn't know, I, I kind of thought of it as, as like, I wanted to go back and open a restaurant, but I kind of, in my head, in the belly of my stomach, it was kind of like giving up, that I was leaving the, mm. the, the center of food in the country and, and going back to Milwaukee, and would I be able to do what I wanted to do there? And this was in 1980. And I found out that um, after a few years that I could do that. And it happened to be in a good time when all of a sudden the, the, those areas were discovering the rest of the country. And all through the 80s and into the 90s, all of a sudden you, you could go home and you could do that. So now, I mean, we were just up in um, Rockland, uh, Rockland, Maine, in Rockport. Rockport and Rockland, and uh, like Sarah Jenkins, who just moved up from New York City and, and has mm-hmm. a restaurant up there, or uh, Melissa Kelly, or you know people that I mean, people can now go home, and be, and this is what makes uh, the communities that this is why people are going to Rockport. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're going to eat dinner at this place, and then they're going to be there, and they say, oh, "This is a beautiful place. Maybe maybe I'll live here sometime." That's how we found. That's how we found Hatfield. I mean, we. Came out, my book agent, uh, Lisa Eckes, lived here, and they rolled out the red carpet of of what this area was, and and like the restaurant that that just left. I mean, that was part of the reason that that this was such an inviting area was, you know, this. I mean, you you're you're in this beautiful area, you're um, in the middle of uh, the country, um, and you you're getting delicious food. Uh, whereas you couldn't, you couldn't years ago. It would be hard to find that 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 level of food outside of ma- major cities. No, I think that's a great point. So, Karen, given given what Sandy's described about the Stir Up Some Love campaign with the Treehouse Foundation and your reporting or conversations, had, were you finding projects like that all over the country, or how how much of a unicorn is that? Well, first of all, I would like to say whoever wants to set one of those up in Southern California should call me right after this podcast, because I think without getting off topic completely, the notion of a community where age and experience are valued, as Sandy described, is not something we see often enough. And I say that as somebody who's old enough to have co-founded an alt weekly. So, you know, Um, (laughs) and, and there is a famous multi-generational home without the foster care aspect of it uh, in Northern California that's been there for years and years, where, as I understand it, the age range runs from teenage to late 80s. Uh, I think it's a, a marvelous focus, and I think it's an appropriate focus for restaurants, which are all about family in the end, the good ones, however you define family. Mm. You know, I am part of the family at my favorite restaurant, even though it's a business transaction. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel that way. That's one of the things that's important to me about it. 
I think that it's going to be more important to us coming out of COVID. Um, in terms of outreach, I found that most of the outreach in Los Angeles in terms of aid, frankly, was from restaurants toward unemployed restaurant workers because we had such a huge number of people and they were all of a sudden flat on their backs economically. You know, they had nothing. Uh, Nancy Silverton ran an aid program at the corner where she has her restaurants where people could just come and pick up stuff. You need diapers, come and pick up diapers. Um, so I think that's most of what we saw, but certainly in the disarray, in, in the chaos with promise, um, we're seeing people moving into communities where there is some kind of need and setting up far more informal places, not the brick and mortar we're used to, but pop-ups or, um, something in front of another business, uh, or, Pickups, you know, you can just come and get your stuff. Um, and I think and hope that having been shattered, we're going to now sort of rebuild with a broader perspective about what the relationship of restaurants to the community is. Um, I told Todd before, I'm working on a very long piece about a particular street in Los Angeles that is both home to a bunch of restaurants and to a couple of very large encampments of unhoused people. And so there are these overlapping communities, but the restaurant community, which has been pretty voiceless in the conversation at the city council level, at the mayor's level, at the bureaucratic level, has finally stepped up this summer and said, we're part of the community too. We need people to feel safe and comfortable coming into our restaurants because this street has defined this neighborhood for decades. So I think we may find more restaurants being more sensitive to their surroundings, however that plays out, whether it's a program like the one Sandy talked about or some other sort of outreach or charitable work. Well, on that note, I wanted to ask you um, both and, and pick up what you both started to mention in the first half of the show, which um, I think you're both expressing, and I hope you're going to express this in a more hopeful way than I'm going to ask the question, but I feel like in the conversations we've been having during the pandemic and more recently, and certainly I agree with what Sandy said, that because of all the aid and subsidies that have been there, I don't think diners have really seen, it's only been the tip of the iceberg of who's going to survive and who's not going to survive. And I'm not sure the general public is as prepared for that level of change to come, and hopefully maybe it doesn't come. But certainly many chefs and restaurateurs have told us that they really worry that essentially mid-range dining will disappear, including neighborhood restaurants like you've been talking about, Karen, that will really have cheap food that doesn't necessarily mean bad food, but it's not a dining experience. And it's either to go or take away, or it's, you know, you eat standing at a bar or you'll have really expensive fine dining, and there'll be sort of this giant middle that's developed over the last, let's say, two, three decades will really disappear because the economic model doesn't work. And so I'm curious, maybe, Sandy, you want to kick us off with you were talking about these, you know, all the pivots and the people who've always survived in the restaurant business know how to pivot. Is is that what you're anticipating or or what perspective do you have about kind of where 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 restaurants are going to go? Well, I think in the um, I think the mid-range restaurant is going to be 
priced at the point of lower end fine dining. It has to be because I I think for years, everybody's tried to get over the fact that, uh, you know, that we don't have to pay people. And you you do have to, I mean, now you're going to have to pay people because people aren't taking the jobs. So, I mean, the $15 wage is, um, it's not only, he is here to stay, it should be here to stay. And um, that's at the, that's at the low end of it. And so what's, I think what's going to happen is um, people want security. Uh, servers, you know, who are getting, you know, when we had the restaurant, we were getting two sixty five an hour. And then whatever tips they made, if they had a great night, they had a great night. If they didn't have a great night, they didn't make any money. And, and there's... Um, that that kind of has that's not a sustainable restaurant. I mean, that's not a sustainable business model. So you you're going to have to pay. You're just going to have to pay more for food. I think that it's you know prices are going to be up and and after a while it's it's going to be it's going to be accepted because that's and it, it's already happening. I mean, it's it, with the cost of products as they're going up and because it, this is a you know an inflationary time of what's going on, but. Um, I mean, I always thought there was a, you know, as a restaurateur, you always had that feeling of what the top end was you could charge. And it was always, well, I can charge um, for this entree, you know, nineteen ninety five, but I can't charge 20 because no one will buy it at 20 You know, it's like, thanks for the nickel. Uh, there's, you know, there, there's got to be just a, a normal thing of this is, this is what the restaurant experience is. And, and you, you have to pay for it. Yeah, that's 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 the way I feel. No, I I, I think a hundred percent. I think I and I really hope that that doesn't get lost. That the two plus dollars per hour tipping model um, is is unsustainable. It doesn't work as a business model. It's a relic of a discriminatory past. And that you know, I think you're pointing to though that labor costs will increase and costs overall will increase and how that shakes out. And maybe that means that actually dining out is not the the, the constant that it had become versus the treat that it used to be long ago. And maybe that's the return. What that means for the size of the industry and sort of a lot of fast casual dining, I don't know. Karen, do you want to have the last word on that? Sure, because I've jotted down three things here. Um, first, I think in the era of the celebrity chef, when I was working on writing my book, there was an adage in the kitchen. If you didn't have your own place by the time you were 30, you were never going to have one. And all the young people working on the line believed that. Um, they also believed that that first place was going to catapult them to the level of a Tom Colicchio or whomever else. Okay, The young man I wrote about uh, did want to have a restaurant by the time he was 30. And five years later, he has a single, small, independent, successful restaurant on in the East Village in New York City. But what's changed over time is that he has put success into perspective. He no longer thinks about having a second, a third, a fourth, a 10th, a 20th restaurant. Mm. He wants to be sort of an old style restaurateur from before the era of the celebrity chef. Um, and I think that's going to make it easier for him to do business because he's got these proportional notions of what to do. Um, when Mark Peel passed away several months ago, 
and I wrote about this in the counter because it so struck me, his daughter said, he never wanted to be that celebrity chef. He wanted to work hard and put food on your plate and make sure you had a good time. And I think redefining what it means to own a restaurant is going to help everybody. That's one thing. I think that the most interesting innovative notion I've seen is time sharing because as I write, people always say to me, you know, restaurant rents are not only crazy, but you're renting the place 24 hours a day and you're only using it for maybe eight. And how impractical is that? So I know two young chefs who are going to open a space, one in LA, one in New York, and the daytime chef who has a breakfast and lunch place is going to occupy the space and the nighttime chef is going to occupy the space and there'll be a break in between to clean everything up and, and retool. But now they're each paying half their rent. So suddenly they're in much better shape. And then the last part of this, which none of us have mentioned because it's the 600 pound gorilla in the room, is that landlords as well have to get past the gold rush that was the last 15 or 20 years in restaurants where they could basically ask whatever they wanted and someone would pay it. You know, Danny Meyer, who had a great rent at Union Square Cafe in New York City for 25 years because he was the first business in the neighborhood, uh, saw his rent increase to $650,000 a year, at which point he said, okay, I'm leaving. And I was living in the area at the time and everyone thought, well, there's, there's an empty storefront. But you know what? A chain snapped it up and there's a, a restaurant in business there. So I think it falls to the landlords as well, as much as the chefs to say, you know what? A good profit is secure and stable and I'm supporting that mid-level of the restaurant industry, <clears throat> which is always a risk. But the era of the astronomical rents is over, except for, you know, a couple of dining palaces that will prevail. So I think everybody has to sort of splash cold water on their face. <laughs> no, I, th I think that's a great insight. And I think that speaks back to what Sandy talked about, which is ultimately, I agree with you to an extent with landlords, but I think landlords were able to do that because of the significantly high levels of patronage at all kinds of restaurants. And if restaurants cost more to operate, cost more to go to, then consumers will make their own decisions about how much they'll do that, which in turn will will impact the choices that landlords have. So it's a I, I think you're both pointing out how much there is still to shake out. So we're gonna take another break and we'll be back with another double Julia moment from Karen and Sandy. Get in touch, send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, tweet us at JuliaChildJCF. And let us know what you think about today's show and topic. Stay with us. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up. And if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory, moment, or how she's inspired them in their career. All right, Karen, what's your Julia Moment? 
Well, um, I used to travel to meet another family. My family used to meet another family in Santa Barbara every summer. And for some reason, we went to this very strange and wonderful place called Pirano, which started with sushi and then spiraled out from there in every conceivable direction. It was, it was not at all what you think of when you think of a sushi bar. It was colorful. It was noisy. There was crazy stuff on the menu. Um, and we always had a good time. And we walked in one day, very large room, and off to the right was Julia Child with a friend of hers. And my party kept going because they didn't see her or recognize her. And I was rooted to the floor. And I had that quandary that you have. Would it be considered an intrusion or a kind gesture if I went over and said something? And then I thought, I cannot leave this room without acknowledging her presence. <laughs> and so I walked over and, you know, apologized profusely for bothering her. And she didn't glare at me. So I kept going. And all I could think of to say, because I was tongue tied, was it's an honor to be in the same restaurant with you. That was the best I could do. And I got that marvelous laugh, which I'm not even going to attempt to, to mimic, and a huge smile. And she said, yes, isn't the fish just wonderful? And I thought, I'm having a conversation about fish with Julia Child. And I said, yes, it is, because I was really incapable of speech. And we had this little back and forth about what a fun place it was and how good the food was. And she loved to come here and she certainly hoped I would enjoy my meal. And I sort of floated off to my table thinking, okay, that is exactly what dining in a restaurant should be about. You're always willing to try something new. You're always willing to set aside your expectations of what, quote, great food should be. And you're always open to people who want to share that enthusiasm and the experience, even if it's just a 10-second exchange like that. It was absolutely, to me, the personification of hospitality and the joys of dining out. And it was years ago, and I've never forgotten it. Oh, I love that. that. Thank you for sharing that. All right, Sandy, what's your Julia moment? Well, um, back in uh, 1990, we had uh, we had just opened our restaurant in, in Milwaukee um, about six months before. And uh, we were starting a chapter of uh, AIWF, which is the American Institute of Wine and Food in, in Milwaukee. And I was one of the founders of the chapter. So... Um, as we were doing the opening, we had uh, Julia came out for four days, so we had her for four days in in was uh, in Milwaukee to take her around the state and show her around, and she had um, she had a lot of ideas of where she wanted to go, and one of the main things she wanted to do was she wanted to go to uh, to a veal farm. Oh, and I thought you were going to say beer factory, but just for no, clarification, you said veal farm. A veal farm. <laughs> okay. And the reason she wanted to go was because at that time she had been uh, getting a lot of flack from PETA about uh, about using veal. And mm -hmm. she kind of wanted to stick it to him that um, there's, you know, with humanely raised veal, you can you can do this. So she wanted to go there and she wanted us to advertise it that she was that we were taking her there. 
And uh, we didn't advertise that we were taking there. But anyway, Provimi Veal, which was one of the largest veal producers at that time, uh, took had a small little private jet that they flew us up to the to the veal farm. And um, so on the we went up there and we went through the whole veal farm and she saw everything. On the way back, we were flying into the Waukesha County Airport and. Um, there was a woman that was traveling with Julie. It was uh, Gabrielle Sayer. And uh, Gabrielle looks out the window and she calls me over to the window. She says, Sandy, she says, come here. And I walked over and she said, what is that down there? And I looked down and I said, that's the Wienermobile. That's the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile. They sent it, they sent it to take us back to Milwaukee from the <laughs> airport. And Gabrielle looks at me and she says, I don't think so. And I'm immediately crushed because when I was five years old, I used to work in my father's grocery store where a restaurant was. And the Oscar Mayer Wienermobile used to come around to all the local restaurants and um, and just to promote their products. And so I was looking out the window when I was five and, and the Wienermobile pulled up in front of our, our restaurant and sorry, the store, the grocery store. The kind of the door flips up and out walks little Oscar with this, with this mustache and big floppy hat. And I, I like freaked out. I got scared. And I went in back in the back room of the store and cried. My sister went out and all the kids in the neighborhood got to go into the Wienermobile. And I had missed my chance. And so here's another chance. And Julia looks out the window and she says, I think I'd like a ride in that Wiener bus. And it was like, I'm thinking, Julia, where have you been all my life? So what what commenced from there was one of the most surreal things of my life. We're driving down I-94. I'm in the Wienermobile with uh, with Gabrielle and with Julia. Uh, we all have our Wiener whistles uh, playing, and they're playing over loudspeakers. You know, I wish I was an Oscar Mayer Wiener. And, and we're playing along. Cars are beeping. And we pull up to the hotel. And as we pull up to the hotel, there's already like a wiener curious crowd that has gathered because it's the Wienermobile. And this door pulls up and outstrides Julia Child. And if you could have seen the look on people's faces as she walked out. And um, it was just from that whole weekend, the last weekend of, of that night, we had a dinner at... Uh, at our restaurant for the closing and the celebration. And uh, Julia was uh, there. And at the end of the night, um, she was waiting outside for uh, a valet car to to pick her up. And in the meantime, I mean, for the four days, we had taken her to all these different places and uh, cheese uh, places and uh, everywhere where she wanted to go. And she had met hundreds of people. And the first night that we were that we took her out, Angie, uh, my wife, was sitting next to her and had, she was asking her about her family. And she said, yeah, well, my, my mother um, and brother have a restaurant over on the West Side and we've had our restaurant. We just opened up and, you know, just kind of telling her a little history. So that last night, four days later, she um, was sitting out waiting for her uh, car and Angie's mother happened to be at the dinner and she went up and she introduced herself to Julie and she said, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm Angie's mother. I just wanted to uh, say hello. And she says, oh, she says, you have that restaurant over on the west side. How is that doing? 
This was after four days of meeting hundreds of people, but but that was traveling with her. That was the way that she was, that she just, she listened to everyone and she really, um, she really connected with people. She always asked the question. It was, to me, it was like uh, Chris Farley when he was on Saturday Night Live. You know, she'd ask a question and you'd sit there and say, God, why didn't I? That's I should ask that question. That's such a great question. <laughs> she always knew the right question to ask. And what she did for French food in the 60s and 70s, she did for American food and American chefs in the, in the 80s and 90s. I mean, she systematically... Um, had all these chefs come together and uh, did different, you know, she had her 80th birthday, which I got to, which I got to cook for. And she had, you know, Julia with master chefs and, and went through all these American chefs. And um, she was so instrumental in, in my career. I, I owe her a, a huge debt of gratitude as, as so many other American chefs do for, for what she, for what she did for us. Well, Sandy, thank you so much for that moment. And I, I think that that's pretty award-winning that you managed to work work into your Julia moment, the, the term uh, wiener curious, uh, and <laughs> also that vivid image of landing in a private jet and Julia getting in the wiener mobile. That is classic. And, and then you brought Chris Farley into it too. So that 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 is stupendous. So thank you for that. And, and Karen and Sandy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank, thank you, Todd. This was this is wonderful. Thank you, thank you, and Karen. Great, great hearing all this. I mean, really, a great perspective. Well, and I've been delighted to spend the time. I wish we could just keep going. Me too. We'll do it again. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. If you want to learn more from Karen, she's at Stabiner on Twitter, and you can check out her work on thecounter.org. It's at the counter on Twitter and Instagram, or at the counter media on Facebook. Find Sandy at Goodstock Farm on Twitter and Instagram. And if you want to support Treehouse Foundation's project, go to stirupsomelove.com. For the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. 
Thanks for listening.